Terry Mugen, part three. We're on this epic journey now. We've gone through expert in armed robberies, heists in Liverpool, top of his game as a butler in Hollywood for the biggest names in the universe. That's that's the bit where we're at right now. Um, we just ended up where, you know, Terry's been kicking it with Muhammad Ali in the gym. <laughs> he's, 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 he was the butler for Frederick Wiseman was where we left off in, in Beverly Hills. He's, and the guy just bought a hundred million dollar painting. What Picasso. Was Picasso's, what was it? Yeah, Pablo Picasso. Which one was the it? The mother and child. Mother and child. Um, before that, you're a butler for Merv Griffin and for Clint Eastwood. <laughs> it's getting... All right, so yeah, you're gonna you're gonna now uh, meet the owners of the Kahala Hilton. Hilton. Go yes, for, go for it. So after we left, we'd left um, Wiseman's. My next venture was obviously I got a call from the international agency. I'm very placeable. Um, for my experiences, this particular home was um, was in a place called Truesdale Estates, where Richard Nixon, the former president, had done a, um, a deal with the land developers, and all the movie stars moved in here, like Sir Dean Martin, and you know, there's a lot of them in there. And this home was the former home of Elvis Presley. And I was assigned to the house to be interviewed by the secretary. Mr. Weinberg was absent. He was in, he owned half of Hawaii and he was the owner of the Carhala Hilton in Hawaii where Ronald Reagan, um, Princess Diane would, that's where their abode would be when they stayed in Hawaii. And that's who they were. So this home was nested in the hills of Truesdale Estates. I arrive early in the morning and I'm getting interviewed by the secretary. And what the job came consisted of was a majordomo. A majordomo is a man that is above a butler and he takes care of the chef and the whole house and he has to be in tip-top shape. He has the responsibilities of the butler, the chef, the maids, Everything. I thought it was very unusual that I hadn't met Mrs. Weinberg on the interview. And it was a difficult home. I didn't know who'd been there before. And now later on in my life, I know why they probably couldn't have lasted. And anyway, they proposed to give me the job and I took it. it everything to me was a challenge. I would just go straight in and blast them and, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and I moved in and my, my house where I lived was next to the garage. It was a little one-bedroom house, but it adjourned the garage. The butler was down the lane from me, well, down the aisle, and then you had... The chef, we put him on the grounds in the pool house. I did him a favor. He came from the Four Seasons, and I did him a favor by giving him the job. So it starts, and you know we're running the home, and the next day, I got introduced to 
meet Mrs. Weinberg. Now, the house was very unusual. When I walked down the corridor, it was like, it was out of the movie, The Shining, and all these lamps on the side, like little chandeliers, and it was dim at night and very weary. And at the end of the corridor was this these massive brown doors. And anyway, I got taken into them. And there she was sitting in the bed, in the corner, this massive, beautiful room that you wouldn't even know it was there. And she was sitting upright. And she had pale skin. She had red hair and a violet nightgown on. And I thought it was something out of a movie. And the first thing she goes, Hello, are you the butler? Are you the majordomo? And I went, Hello, Mrs. Weinberg, how are you? And she went, You've had too much fucking sun. Because I was, you know, at the beach and that on my days off. <laughs> You've had too much fucking sun. And I'm looking at her going, Oh my God. Next thing, starts talking to her, getting to know her a little bit. And she goes, how's that fucking chef? What's he like? I said, he's brilliant. I said, he come from the Four Seasons. And she went, he's not as good as our chefs at the Kahala Hilton in Hawaii. I went, oh, my God. Anyway, I settled down. And um, what she'd do, she'd come out at night. The job was easy. We were doing like all the silver. We had the butler's pantry. And my objective was the Rolls Royce to clean it and take it for the drive to get out of the house. And, um, so the butler was nice. The chef was nice. And he'd come up with all these dishes, but she didn't like it. She never liked his food and she picked on him. And I was thinking, there's something wrong here in the house. And then the, the other butler had, They'd been there a while. They were from Dublin. They were lovely people. And she, they used to give me um, innuendos and go, you know, she's crazy. So we get into it. And um, after a few weeks, she was nice and I was calming her down. And the work was like, you know, you had to polish these floors and the silver. They had silver from Ascot here. The Ascot Cup they had. The horse racing. And it had to be cleaned every week. And we had special polish to clean it with white gloves. And then sometimes we'd have these dinner parties at night um, in a big round table. And you had to serve them in white gloves. And we'd be in the kitchen and the, the bell would go. You'd have a bell. She'd have a bell. We want this. We want that. Bring us this. Bring us that. And the chef was doing a good job. I thought, this is funny, this. This is just my sense of humour from Liverpool. I used to just go, this is brilliant. But I was laughing at them all. And then, all of a sudden, boom, one morning, I wake up at four in the morning and there's smoke coming down the corridor. I'm going, what the hell is that? I could smell it so... I got up and I could hear the rumbling of the car in the garage and I thought someone is stealing it, someone's stealing the car and I thought to myself, well hang on a minute, I'll go out the front of the house and I'll go round the back and I had a key, you can put a key in the garage 
and I opened it, and all this smoke hit me. The smoke hits me. I'm going, what? What's this? The car's on fire. I'm thinking it's got a short in the battery, something like that. Next thing, I looks, and I looked down at the car, and I seen the bottom of it, and the exhaust had a pipe in it, and the pipe was going into the car. And I went, hold on a minute. And I looks, and there she is in the car with the pipe in her mouth. And I couldn't believe it. So I dragged her out. The smoke's everywhere. I'm coughing like, you know. And the first thing I done, I called the police. And I knew that there was something wrong, but I didn't know it was this drastic. Calls the police. Up in LA, the police come with an ambulance. And they all come together, the paramedics. And they come. It's, it's like now it's about 4.30. They get there. They're giving the CPR, oxygen. She's alive. She starts coughing. But but they knew her. She tried to do something before. And then what happened was they had her on the gurney and one of the paramedics and the cop come to me and they got my details and uh, view experience. I said, no. So she's on the gurney and she's got the oxygen on and the the cop said to me, I'm taking the notes and the statements. Um, can you tell me how old Mrs. Weinberg is? And um, I said, I think she's 43. And she takes the mask off and she goes, 44! And I went, oh my God. <laughs> oh, you lunatic. And you're, putting, you're doing this to us. We were subject to this, what we would see. What we would see. So they took her to the hospital so the chef and that, early in the morning, we got up and that. And I kept it quiet. I said, she's gone to the hospital. And I, I didn't say nothing to the chef. I just said, can you do some bacon and eggs and that and give us some orange juice? And I just sat there with the other butler and that. So the other butler, he said, I, I can't take it. So we went to the doctor and the doctor advised them to quit the job. So they quit. Though she was in the hospital and she's calling me from the hospital from seeing the Sinai Medical Centre from the room. What's the chef cooking me tonight? Are you bringing it over to me? And I'm going, well, don't you get fed in the hospital? It's a Sinai Medical Centre. It's one of the best hospitals in the world. So I said, what do you want? She went, go to um, Nate Nell's on Beverly Drive, she said, and get me some lox and salmon. And I thought, okay. So I get the Rolls Royce over and I go over to the hospital. I'm going to see in the sign She's in the psychiatric ward. I'm taking them in. <laughs> I'm taking them into the ward. It's just unbelievable. I'm going for He's this gousher from Liverpool. I'm in seeing the sign medical centre. And I'm taking bacon and locks to a Jew. It was nuts. And she went, thank you, Terry. And then one night, she'd be nice to me. And then she'd be going, I make sure you stay out the sun. It was absolutely bananas. So she stayed in there a while and then she was released. She came home. But for some reason, she didn't like the chef. So What couple, nationality was the chef? He was American. American? Yeah, he was gay. He was, he was, he was gay. And then, you know, you know, obviously, you know, when, you know, he's, he's gay, but I didn't judge him. I didn't mind because he was a good kid. He was just making a living. That's all he was doing. So I decided to... I just got along with it, you know, and I was making good money. And I just kept, um, 
you know, I just went along with it. And so she came home and one night, she come in the kitchen and the chef was, you know, he was down by the pool and he had a little dog and the dog used to bark. So she got everything out the fridge and she threw it all over the kitchen. The whole lot. I came out in the morning. All the food and the milk had been poured all over the kitchen on marble, one of the most beautiful kitchens you've ever seen. And I looked at it and I went, oh my God. I, I, me and the chef, we just cleaned it up. And she was going bananas. So the chef come in about one o'clock. And he said to me, um, I'm getting out of here, Terry. I'm done. And he left me. And he just pissed off. He didn't even get paid. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. <laughs> it wasn't worth it. So I'm left. I'm left there. I mean, and it's Elvis's old house. And it had some beautiful pa- parties there because Elvis used to fly all the, all the hula dancers in from Hawaii, I believe, in the day. And it was unbelievable, I got told. Periodically, Mr. Weinberg would come back home and I'd serve him. I'd serve him filet mignon and I'd do him lovely meals, me and the chef and that. Really lovely gentleman. But he'd only stay one night because she used to... I, I, I'd hear them arguing in the room and she'd get his closet and she'd take all his suits and she'd dump them in, in, in the corridor. <laughs> And she went, you can fuck off. You can get back to Hawaii. I don't want you in this home. And I was like, oh, my God. She'd go, Teddy, what's for my dinner? And I'd go, okay, we've got you something nice. It was absolutely unbelievable. And it, what it reminded me of, it reminded me of the cuckoo's nest. You know, the cuckoo's nest that was done in 75. It was just like that. So I stayed and I was the only one there. And I just carried on during the day and I thought, well, you know, my time's coming to an end. And I didn't know that she had a gun in the bedroom. Yeah, she had a mental woman in Truesdale Estates in Beverly Hills had access to a gun. So this morning, I got up and I didn't hear from her. And it was very hard. You know, I was more compassionate because, you know, coming from Liverpool, what we've seen and what I've gone through in my life, you know, we've had more empathy for people, you know, because we'd all come from a close area where, you know, we'd always helped each other. And I always felt that way. And this morning... I knew there was something wrong this day. Something weird was going to happen. Anyway, she was okay. I got her some lunch. I did a, um, a tuna fish sandwich for her with a pickle and um, a coffee. And I took it into the room. And I looked at her and I thought, she's not well. So I asked her what she wanted that evening. And she always said salmon and lox. And I was very uneasy this day. There was something going to happen really bad. I prepared the tray. And as I was walking down, it was like, as I say, the movie out the shining. 
and um, the gun went off. Did you hear it? Yeah. The gun went off. And I knew. And um, that was the end. Did you find her? I was a bit scared. I was apprehensive to go in the room at the time. And, um, but I thought at the time that if I call the police, there's going to be a big investigation. And it, it crossed my mind to think, you know, that they might be accusing me. So I sort of, I went, went in and I didn't go in. But, I've, you know, I knew. So what I did is I went to the kitchen and I called the police. And they knew. They knew. And um, it was sad. And then my life was... Uh, so when I wrote the chop, I wrote the chapter in the book, The Weinberg Tragedy. And that, that gives more detail about it. So I decided to... I was, I was on my way back then. The butler's on the move again. Max Factor. Yeah. So I'd, I'd got my stuff... The police came, the homicide came. They'd done a big investigation and the police had asked me, but they knew what was going on. And um, they said, took my phone number and Mr. Weinberg was in, he was in um, Hawaii. And that was the end of it. That was at the end of Mrs. Weinberg. It was expected. Yeah, it was. It was very sad. Mm. I'd never thought I'd be in this position to, that I'd be, I was a major domo. Yeah. So I took a few weeks off, went down the beach, went back in the gym, seeing Jimmy, done some training, and I was getting calls every day. And I'd, I'd run up from Santa Monica to Venice, and I'd run up to Malibu just to get it all out of my mind. And um, I got a call. Teddy, there's a beautiful gentleman. He'd like you to come to his home. I said, well, let me come up to the agency. Okay, so I got dressed up as usual in my suit, and I went to the agency, and I sat with her, and I didn't say nothing about the Weinbergs, because she knew you didn't have to say anything. Um, it was in The Guardian in London, the news. My brother had called me and said to me, it was. Since then, I think they've erased it all from the record, and the Beverly Hills Police... And um, I just carried on. So I went to see Dora, and she said, I've got a lovely job for you in Beverly Glen. And I said, okay. So I got back in the swing. I goes back in the swing, and it was for um, a gentleman called Max Factor, um, the mogul makeup man. And it was it was Max Factor Jr. Yeah. My mum used to use Max Factor all yeah. the time when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, he was great. So I goes to his house, and he's an older gentleman. And he was, he had a, these nurses 24 hours taking care of him because he was getting on a bit. So he liked me being around him because I was young. And, um, but before that, I'd had another interview with um, the director of um, Lethal Weapon. I'd had an interview with him. And um, I'd met the butler in his house. Um, his name was Richard Donner. He, he directed the movies with Mel Gibson. And I'd, I'd been to his house before, Max Factors. And it was up in Hollywood Hills. And 
he wanted me to come and work for him, but I didn't like the situation. And I always remembered he had guns in the home. So anyway, I took the position with Mr. Factor because I found it more informal. Takes the position with him. Drives him every day to Malibu in a, in a, a blue gold choice. Takes him out. Takes him everywhere with me. And in the afternoon, I'd sit with him in the afternoon tea. It was more like a companion than a butler. And then the nurses were like, you know, they were nice. But they had the family, they were Russian Jews as well. And some of the family converted from um, being Jews to Catholics or Protestants because they'd come and stay the his daughters and they'd tell me. I always remember one incident. It was his birthday. And I took him down to the Tudor house where I used to work. And I took him in. And the baker then was... My brother-in-law, David McNally, he took Alan's position up because Alan got deported. And um, we gave him sausage rolls and steak and kidney pie. And he, he wouldn't stop eating. But from seeing his sign in medical centre, we had a nutrition diet and we had to keep to the guidelines and we had to keep to his weight at 165. So every morning we weighed him. Every time I took him out, he was £10 overweight. <laughs> Because I, I used to love feeding them and just take them out, make them happy. And um, and then the nurses would say, he's £10 over. I said, no, you just got the reading wrong. It's 163, 167. It's not 175. Okay. Do you get it? And she'd go, okay, I've got it. And it was nice. But we had this, one of his daughters, Barbara, would come over. And she was the iron whip. She cracked the whip on the the nurses and they felt very uncomfortable with her. So she pulled up in this big Jaguar, this British Jaguar that they had made and everything had to be British, you know, the Bentley, the the Jaguar. And this day. So I caught her in the corner and she was smoking. And she got out the car and she went in the corner and she was smoking a cigarette. So what I decided to do was, I just went out and I said to her, good morning, Mrs. Bentley. I said, um, can I have a cigarette? And she went, do you smoke, Terry? I went, yeah, I'll have a ciggy. I didn't smoke, but I just wanted to play this game with her. So she gave me a cigarette and then she's standing in front of me. So she's got to finish the cigarette with me. So what's she going to do? She's got to talk to me. So I built this rapport with her and I'd asked her, have you ever been to England and have you ever been here and all that? Because you couldn't get near her. And she was the heir to the throne of the Max Factor family. The family, yeah, all the kids, worth billions. So I decided to have the cigarette. And I said to her, you know, knowing you come over here, you know, the, the household's great and your father's happy. He's under the guidelines of the hospital. Everything's brilliant. And she said, um, his birthday's coming up, you know, Terry. What are you going to do? I said, well, just leave it to me. I'll do all English style. I said, I can do an English trifle. I can do a, um, a souffle, a chocolate souffle. And I can, we'll do salmon, salmon and, salmon and um, cucumber sandwiches. And I'll set the table beautiful with white roses, pink roses. And I said, you can invite all the family. I said, will you do me one condition? 
can you back off the nurses? And I'd like you to um, teach them, and with respect, teach them actually, have respect for them, because they feel uncomfortable. They're only human beings, and, and they're looking after the golden man. That's what they're doing, and that's what we're there for. Without us, you wouldn't have no one. And she said, Terry, I will. I'm sorry if, if I've offended them. Because she was. And she, they really respected me. Anyway, this party came. And um, I'd done the table beautiful. I'd set it so beautiful, like the QE2. I put champagne on the tables, but, you know, it was non-alcoholic, pink and white. And we had this beautiful party. And um, it was absolutely, all the family came, about 25 of them. And she was very proud of it. She said, what, the way you've set the table? Because that's the way you used to set it on the QE2. You know, very formal and all the silver service. So when it was finished that night, he come round and, and then my wife, she was helping with me. She always came in to help me. And he came round and he'd shuffle around the living room at night to get some exercise with the nurse. And he, he took an envelope out of his pocket and he gave it to me. And it was $2,000 tip. And I never looked at it. I just took it. And I said, thank you, Mr. Factor. And I put it in my pocket. And, I, and later on, I counted. It was two, two grand. And I just carried on with the job. And then um, a few months later, my sister was coming from... England, the UK, to visit. And I gave her the address of my place to put down on Fort Street in Santa Monica. So she comes through the immigration and she gets stopped by the immigration. And they stop her and they say, where are you going? And they find the address with my phone number. Next thing, she had the phone number at Factor's house. I gave her that number as well, because I could answer the phone. I was the one that answered the phone all the time at the household, because then I knew she was coming in, and I was going to go, and when I finished work, I was going to pick her up. So she was coming in, she was, and she got stopped and the phone went we'd done fish I always remember what I gave him it was orange roughy and I'd, I'd, I'd done a cucumber salad and he had some um, cranberry juice and a, a chocolate mousse that evening and the phone went and I picked the phone up and went hello can I help you the Max Factor residence and, it's, and this guy said Hello, this is the United States Immigration. Um, we want to speak to Terry Mugan. And I went, yeah, speaking. He said, um, we'd like you to come down to the immigration. I said, where? He said, to the Los Angeles airport. He said, we're holding your sister. And we know that you're illegal. And I went like that. I just put the phone down. Goes in, me living quarters, packed the case, packed it all, got in my car and left without saying goodbye to Mr. Factor. 
went down to my apartment, Santa Monica, got a net, and we had to move to a hotel for two weeks till it all quietened down. Went back to factors. He, he, he was bluffing me, the immigration officer. I found out then by law that was against the law to go to a, a private residence. He was bluffing me. He bluffed me. So I had to leave. A few weeks later, I moved, moved back in the apartments. They let my sister in. They given an immigration hearing in Los Angeles. I said, don't go. Just fly back to England. Don't put up with all this shit here. And um, I proceeded on. And then um, went back to the house, factors. And he was very upset with me. And he said, I would have sponsored you, Terry. I'll get you the green card. And then he, I just left. And then I was back to the agency again then. I was back at the agency. And then I went back to the agency. And there was a job come up um, for an A-list actor. There was a few of them came up. Tom Bosley came up. Steven Spielberg came up. Mickey Rooney came up. And um, I'd, I'd actually gone to... I went to Spielberg and done an interview with him at his studios. And um, I didn't like his behaviour, the way he was behaving. Um, he had some parrots in the kitchen and he said to me, these parrots are more important than my wife. And he was married to an actress called Amy Irvin at the time. He was married to her. And I thought, you're very acting, very unusual. And well, you know, you can come to my house and, you know, you can try it out for the week and see how you like it and all that. And I just looked at him. Parrots are more important than his wife. Yeah. Parrots are more important than his wife. And he said, you've got to clean the parrots in the cages out every day and all that. And I said, well, I'm a butler. I said, I'm not a gamekeeper. And he looked at me. So I pulled out of that one. <laughs> I just pulled out. And then um, I went up to Mickey Rooney, the famous actor in um, Westlake Village. He was just absolutely nuts. I thought, I don't know party you. And, I, and then I went back. And then, um, so this big actor came up, um, George Siegel. So I went to George's home and he lived in um, Bel Air, a beautiful place. And um, I goes to him. He'd, he'd been, he'd been with, um, he'd done a movie called um, Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor. And he was friends, he told me, with Richard Burton. And I told him I took care of them on the QE2. Anyway, cut a long story short, he eyes me in his home. In Bel Air, this beautiful home in Bel Air, it was gorgeous. I had living quarters. What to come with the job again? Big white Rolls Royce and a, um, a red Austin Martin. So George had this garage, and he was doing. He had a few sets, and then he was doing a few movies at the time. And he'd, he'd done a lot of movies. George he'd done the Longest Day, and he'd done the, the Valentine's Massacre. And then The Owl and the Pussycat with Jane Fonda. And um, Glenda Jackson, she won a, an Oscar with him for some, um, some um, a class act or something like that. And me and George, we got, become friends. And anyway, he had this garage and he had all the movies in the garage, the posters. And I asked him one day, I said, can I paint the garage? 
I want to put all your movies up for you. And he went, that would be great. And I, I painted the garage for him. And I put all the movies around the garage. And um, he had a lovely wife, Linda. And she was the manager of the Pointer Sisters. Remember the Pointer Sisters? Yeah. yeah. She was the manager of them. And um, he said to me, you'll get up to meet a lot of people here, Terry. So I just carried on normal. And actually, the quarters, but he, he preferred me to live out, outside the home. So I'd go home at five o'clock. And it was a good little job. So I'd done the garage for him. And um, one day, he was going to lunch with a friend, um, another actor, and he never showed up. And so they had a table booked at the, the Brown Derby on um, Sunset. It was on Sunset or Wiltshire Boulevard. It was a famous restaurant. So we decided, so I said, what card do you want, George? No, well, it's called Mr. Siegel. And he said, um, just take the Austin Martin. So here's me and him going down. In the Austin Martin, pair of glasses on, driving down sunset. Everyone's looking at us. Pulls up to the Browns Abbey. Gets out the car, everyone's staring at the both of us. This older actor, they thought I was an actor. And we just gets out and walks in the restaurants. And I'm watching everyone and they're all staring at us. It was unbelievable. And um, came back, come back to the house. And then in the evening, in the afternoon... I'd do them evening meals. I'd leave him and his, his wife evening meals. So one particular day, he was having a party in the garden and he gave me a list of actors to pick up. And he said, take the white Rolls Royce because it'll fit them all in. And he asked me, what are you doing for lunch? I said, well, I'll do um, an Irish stew. It's my mother's recipe. It's about a hundred years old. And he looked at me. Really? And he said, yeah. So it's called Scouse. <laughs> so it's called Scouse. <laughs> and he went, really? Yeah, so it's, but it's Irish. So it's my mother's recipe. So I said, I used to learn it from her when I was a kid. And um, so the day come, I set the garden and all that. And I was excited. That's the old so I got the list off him. The list had consisted of Buddy Aki, famous comedian, always doing Las Vegas. Bert Reynolds. I knew where Bert Reynolds lived because I lived next door to him in Wiseman's. And Charles Dane. And, and then there was another guy that was going to come later that I didn't know. He didn't tell me. Anyway, goes down, picks Buddy Aki up. Knocks on the door and said, yeah, um, Mr. Siegel's guest today. He comes out, little buddy comes out. He's a comedian, funny little guy he was. He's always on the Johnny Carson show. A lot. And he goes, I'm packing. And I was going, what? Oh, well, we, oh, he must have a gun. Yeah, and I'm packing. I pack all the time. Everywhere I go, I pack. And I'm like that. Wow. <laughs> well, get in. Anyway, get in. Gets him in. The car shuts the car. Goes over to um, Bert Reynolds, goes to the gate, presses the buzzer. Um, hello, yeah, um, guest from Mr. George Siegel. Um, I'm chauffeur. Bert comes out. Comes out, Bert comes out. He's about six foot two, dead handsome, you know. Gets in the car, close the car on him. 
goes down to another house and um, just it's just off Roxbury Drive and goes to that house. And it was at the top of Roxbury on Lexington. It was on the corner. And I pulled up there. They were all gated areas. And it was um, Charles Dernan. And um, gets him out. And I've got the three of them in the back of the car. And I'm the chauffeur and I'm looking at them. And I'm clocking them in the back. <laughs> and I'm going, this is brilliant. It's like a movie. Gets to the house. They all go in the garden. Sit down. I've got the scouts warmed up. And um, George is smoking a big cigar. Always, always smoking a cigar. You know, when he was on the Johnny Carson show, smoking this big cigar, he was he was unbelievable. And um, done a, he, he made his own, own mission one day to do cocaine. And um thought that was a bit like weird and for him to do that to the public. But they can do what they want. So he said to me, Terry, bring the boys in the car. Do you want a drink? And I got them all a drink. And I'd served them on silver. It was always silver, nice, you know. And he said, Terry, there's gonna, um, another guy coming. He'll be in in about half an hour. So I'm in the kitchen and preparing all the food. And I've done some cabbage as well. Um, beetroot with the scouse. And I've got it all, all ready, warmed up and that. And I've got to save on the plate, beautiful plates. And I'll take it out. Next thing, the doorbell goes. Goes to the door. And I open the door. It's Robert Redford. And I went, good afternoon. Welcome. I said, would you like a drink? He said, yeah, what have you got? And I said, they're all drinking scotch. I said, do you want a scotch? He went, sure, why not? <laughs> so next thing, they all went in the garden. They're all sitting in, in the garden and um, gave them the scouse. So George has got a script. He used to get these scripts from Hollywood. And I'd see them in the bathroom. And I'd, I'd have a little look at them. And it was it was brilliant. So he gets the script and he's he's he's, he's in the garden and um he gets the script and he gets angry and he throws it up in the air and he, he throws it on the fucking floor and he goes, um, I'm fucking sick of that goddamn Marlon Brando. You know, this guy makes so much money every movie, and I'm like that. I he said I should be making enough. So Robert Redford says to him, calm down. And I'm watching this. George gets a cigar. He said, it's not like you, George. Why are you getting upset? And I'm just looking at them all in the garden. I'm shaking my head. So anyway, they have the scouts. They're all sitting there laughing and talking shite. And um, George comes in the kitchen. And I said to him, when he getting upset for? Because I was quite close to him. And he said, Man and Brando. I said, Well, there you go. I said, What an actor. One of the greatest theatre actors in the world. And he said to me, How do you know? Why would you know that? I said, Well, I'd been to Joan Rivers' house, you know, the comedian. And while I was working for George, and he didn't know. And I'd been assigned for six weeks on the weekends. And she'd asked me to look after 
George Siegel had said to the agency, no, we can't go. He's under contract with me. I said, I'm under no contract. I didn't sign. Um, it's called a, a G. It's, it's, it's a, a contract um, where you sign and you don't sh- show any um, talk about nobody. NDA. NDA. Yeah, non, yeah, a non NDA disclosure. And, and so I said, no, I can do what I want. And he knew where I was going there because I'd said to him in the kitchen, I'd actually said to him, Marlon Brando. I said, I've been to John Rivers' house on the weekends. I go there and I'm taking care of Salon and Olivia. And he told me that Marlon Brando was, was one of the greatest actors that he'd ever seen in his life. I said, so you should be honoured to be in that position with him. You should be honoured. I said, he's he's unbelievable. And one question that I'd asked um, Sir Lawrence Olivia, when I did take care of him, was who was the greatest actor? And he had mentioned Marlon Brando. And anyway, me and George got back again and they went back in the garden and someone had mentioned about the butler and someone said to him, wouldn't it be beautiful to have a butler in a movie? And he points to me and he goes, there he is, there. That's him. He's been around. So I looked at him and I went, yeah, I'm the butler. I'm playing my part on the screen, but you don't see me. It's Oscar performance. Robert Redford looked at him and went, George went, I told you, you should have been an actor. <laughs> just like that. And I just started laughing. And I'm going, fucking hell, the bank robber. <laughs> I'll start off just the bank robber. I'll do that movie first and then the butler. <laughs> oh, my God. So next thing, I stayed with George a while. And um, anyway, things were getting on top of me, but I'd always been in touch Sean with um, a butler um, at Richard Donner's home. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and... Of course, the snacks and the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Um, can't wait to have this this morning. Let's see what this one tastes like. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. I'd shared an experience with him that we would meet at a park um, below um, Spelling's house, the big producer in the Holmby Hills, and he would drive a maroon Rolls Royce 
and I would drive a blue Rolls Royce and we'd meet in a park because we'd had the same interview and I'd met him in an agency and we crossed swords in a shop called Gelson's in Century City where you do all the shopping for the stars. And he was, he was, he asked me to come up to the house to Richard Donner's to meet Mel Gibson. And I said, oh, you know, I'll come up and have a cup of tea and that, you know, I said, I wasn't particularly interested because I'd met a few of them. I'd met Stallone's um, butlers, um, Kevin King and Paul Kane. They were Stallone's butlers. I'd met them years and years before this and they were my friends. And they told me all about Stallone. Um, so there's quite a few English butlers. But this guy particularly was telling me he was so engrossed with his job. We had a cup of tea one afternoon in Richard Donner's and his wife was going to school to be a psychologist. And they were leaving the job. So what he decided to do, he decided to take his own life. Yeah. And I was telling him that I was going to be leaving and going back to England. And I didn't know at the time how bad it was. And I was, I'd only had a few weeks left. I was going to, I was returning because I'd been in touch with some solicitors and they had told me to come back at the time. At the time could be appropriate for me to go back. Anyway, I got news from his wife that he'd, he'd took a gun of, Richard Donners, and he'd killed himself. He shot himself in the home. And it was the headlines in all the papers, British Butler dies in movie star's home, and producer's home, Richard Donner. It was so sad. What had he done? So anyway, I ended my relationship with George Siegel. Actually, George was moving back to New York. He'd got his face done. He had a facelift, and he was selling the house in Bel Air. And they were moving to New York. And it was time for me to leave. So I'd made an arrangement to fly back to England to face justice um, because of the pressure. So I went to Palm Springs for the weekend with my wife. And I'd called a solicitor in Liverpool. Um, his name is Rob Brody. He was a good friend of mine. And he's passed on now. And he said, come home, Teddy, just try it, see what you think. I said, will you represent me? He went, yeah. So we decided to leave Los Angeles. And I rented my apartment out to a friend. I said, if I don't come back, you can keep it. But there was a bit of... I thought I'd get about seven years to ten years at the time. I just had this beautiful life in California. And I'll be going back to face ten years. Or it could have been fifteen years. I just wanted to get it over with. So we get back to Liverpool. Get back and go to the city centre. And and I know everyone. Go to the solicitor's office and says, Teddy, can we have some coffee with you? Says, yeah, all right. Goes with Rob around the town and he said to me, Teddy, you've been away for six years. I don't think they've got nothing on you. I think you'd be exonerated by now. He said, I'll make some inquiries. And his advice to me 
was not to give myself up. That was the advice. So I stayed in Liverpool and I'd met two of the old partners. And Joey Wright had betrayed the both of them. And I was outside the outskirts of a home and one of them said to me, Terry, will you come in with us? We're going to kill Joey. And I looked at them, he said, yeah, we've got the gun upstairs. They had a shotgun, they had a handgun, and they said they're going to kill Joey Wright. And I sat and I looked at them and I went, hang on a minute. I've been in Beverly Hills, I've done this life, and I've come back to this. And then some of the crime families at the time had invited me to do importation. But my life had changed the day I was in Wiseman's with the money and the redemption. And I'd been married. I'd been married eight years and I'd wanted children. Anyway, my two friends, I had to change their thinking. And I told them, they said he knows your home. And Joey at the time was doing massive importation. I could have got in with Joey. So what I came up with was uh, an agreement with my friends that if, if you kill him, that I was associated to Joey, going back on the statements that he'd made against me, and I would be a targeted, I'd be his, his enemy, because they knew the cops, that he blew me up and he had that connection with them. And I was one of the closest people to him at the time. So I changed these guys' minds and I said, listen, why don't we do this? Why don't we tax him? And they looked at me and said, well, that's not a bad idea. I said, let me sort it out for you. And he said, well, he's scared of you, Terry. We know he's scared of you. I said, well, them days are gone, as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to go back to the United States anyway. So I'd met all some of the crime families, had some drinks with them all over the city, and they were, they were delighted to see me. What are you going to do with Joey? And they, they thought I was going to have a straightener with him and all, I was going to do something. And I went, nah, lad. I said, I've got nothing against him. You know, he's a he's a blow up merchant. He's a it's a super grasser, and that was it. So what I decided to do was to go to his home. I know he was a bit of a tough guy, but to me it was nothing. I'd been dealing with all them all my life. So I went to his home, and he lived on um, in Liverpool on Queen's Drive. One night. And it was April, I'd, I'd arrived, and it was light at night. So about 6.30, I went to the house. I just bang, 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 knocked on the door. And his wife opened it, Mary. Her name was Mary or Mary. She was a nice girl. She had two kids, young Joseph and Michael Wright. And I said, hello, Mary. I said, it's Teddy, how are you? I've just come home from the States. 
Joey pops his head around the corner and he goes, Is that you, Terry? I went, all right, how are you? And he said, how are you doing? I went, all right. And he, he didn't come to the door. He stayed where he was. And I went, here a minute, what's the matter with you? Come out, what's the do, lad? So he comes out. And, you know, he's put some weight on. He was a bit, a bit of a fat lad. And, um, but he could have a go like. And I had a lot of bottleless fella. And I knew what he was doing through the grapevine, through others. And I kept that to myself. So we said to him, listen, can I have a pint with you? And we'll go up to Walton Road, to the Black Horse. I need to speak to you. said, you've got a nice house. Got lovely kids. Lovely wife. I just need to speak to you. said, Joe, it's not about me. It's in your best interest to come with us. I said, you're safe. I've got no one with me. I said, Joey, I'm standing here now. If I pulled a gun out, I could kill you right now. It's not about that. I said, come with me, let's have a pint. So we walked up. It was, a walk. it was only a few bus stops away. We walked up to Wanton Road. And he was making a lot of dough at the time. A lot of dough in the 80s. And I'd heard that. So I sat with him, I had a drink with him. I said, listen, do you want 150,000 quid? And he looked at me and went, what? I said, do you want 150? I said, I'm the messenger. You've got to come up with 150,000 in cash. I said, if you don't, I think your life will be in danger. And it's possibility that your sons will be targeted too. They'll be targeted. And that's all I've got to say to you. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 75. I said, no. Joey, it's 150. I said, I'm going to come back tomorrow. And he looked at me. He said, do you want another pint? And I didn't drink that much, you know. It's, well, I said, go on, I'll have another one. So I have another one with him. And he sits. I said, listen, lad, I'm going back to the United States. I said, your trial that you had with me, you had made statements against me. And I had the trial out with him in the pub. I said, you had boxed the jury off. You paid the jury for the not guilty. And that was my advice I gave you to follow the jury home on the bus. And I had done this for some people on the docks early in my life to follow the jury. And I'd get behind them on the back of the bus. An old friend of mine, Joe Evans, had been caught with a, a wagon load of whiskey and he was in custody. And I was pulled in with them with um, a good old friend called Jerry Benny. And I was young at the time and I followed the jury and I got behind them on the bus and I said, make sure you come in with a not guilty tomorrow. It's in your best interest. And I'd pass that on to Joey. What to do? And I got that message to him. And we always talked about that 
how we would box off the Liverpool jury. And it worked for Joey. They even had the glass that they planted from the security guard onto Joey's clothes for forensic. That's how much they wanted to frame him. And they put it on my clothes. But the jury still came back in and he was found not guilty. I said, but what you told the cops, you exactly told the police that I had left to California, Joey. And it was in the Echo. It was an headline in the Echo. Liverpool man escapes to America after attacking a security guard on Scotland Road. You actually told them I went to, to Los Angeles. How fucking dumb are you? I said, but I tell you what, lad, I'm talking now our Liverpool language. They're going to have you. I said, you've got half an hour for me to cough. You've got half an hour. I'm leaving. I'm fucking off back to the United States to get on with my life. Are you, what, what do you think? He said, what about a hundred? I said, I've just told you. It's 1.50. So tomorrow, Joey, there's going to be a car parked on County Road. In the back of the car, it's going to be a um, Medeo. They had the Medeo out there. This new car had come up with Medeo. This fella had a Medeo. The car's going to be parked there. The plates were changed on it. And I said, take the money. And I don't want you to bring it into the pub. Because if you set me up, Joey, and I get arrested, that's drug money that you're giving. That what, that's what you're making now. And he said to me, all right, Terry. I said, I'm telling you, lad, you've just saved, I've just saved your life. I've actually saved your life. And you were the one that cast me up. I said, but I want to thank you for that because you actually changed my life. And I'd seen through this. I said, I went to Beverly Hills and I'd become a good butler and I've, I've had a good life and I'm going back to get some more. So thanks, mate. I said, go on your way, Joey. Anyway, I said, I'll see you tomorrow. Don't bring any heavies here, mate. Don't bring any guns. I said, and I will be here. Take the money and put it in the Medeo on this street. Besides the black horse, the back doors open and the two guys, my other partners, were watching the Medeo. He takes the money, he puts it in. They watch them. He comes back out. He said, do you want to have a pint? I said, no, thanks. I knew then I was outside in case anything happened to me on the inside. And I said, Joey, good luck. God bless you. So what happened to his life and his children's life, his son was executed. Mickey Wright was executed. And East Lancashire Road at a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Joey became a mule Importation to Scotland of heroin. The police had followed him one morning, got on the train with him and followed him to Scotland. They raided the apartments in Scotland and found all the heroin and the cocaine. And he, the judge gave them 25, the judge gave them 100, 100 years. They got 25 years each. Joey ended up in Scotland in jail. 
during 25 years. Later on in his life, he got out. I think they, um, they dropped it to 15 years. He'd actually asked me to come in with him. I could, there's no way I could have done it. Because I was on my way back. His life was cut short down. The sentence was cut short down to 14 years. There was an order from a judge. And I think they confiscated his homes. He had multiple homes. He come out. He was depressed. Became an alcoholic. Went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then he, 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 he fixated in, the, in his sleep. And he died on his own sick. And Joey had passed away. And that was the end of Joey's life. How old was he? I don't know at the time, Sean. I don't know. It was very sad. The other two guys, I saved their lives for not killing them. Because I know for a fact what had gone on in Liverpool, all the killings, that these would have got caught. The same with um, my other friends who were executing Darren G. They finally got caught. That was the life of Liverpool. So then I would return to the United States to start a new life. That's 1987. 1987. That's the yuppies in the stock market crash year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go to Orange County. Go to Orange County. Goes back to Dora. Goes back to Dora. Dora. Good old Dora. (laughs) The best international agency in the world. Now I was powerful. I was, I was classed then as the most wanted Hollywood butler in Hollywood. And I did about Orange County. And this gentleman was an attorney and he owned a five acre estate. So I decided to take a chance and drive to Orange County. The gentleman's name, the lawyer, was named Teddy Giles. He is now um, Ben Carson, who ran for president. He's his attorney and his advisor. I get down to Orange County with my wife, Annette. It was a Sunday morning, and I always remember it was May. And I pulled up to the house, all gated, beautiful surroundings. And it was on a hill called Peacock Hill. And the reason why it was called Peacock Hill was where the peacocks used to roam. And I went in and had an interview with him. His house was 5,000 square feet. He had a cinema, five acres outside, waterfalls. Very, very... He was only 38. Took me to my house next door. My house next door had a swimming pool. My house was 4,000 square feet. <laughs> <laughs> had a gym in it. Everything. It was unbelievable. Next thing, the house next door, he'd knocked down. It was a million dollars and he built a tennis court. And he said to me, we've got some lovely exotic birds outside and they had peacocks and swans. (laughs) Oh my God, I've never seen nothing like it. It was like a, it was like paradise. It was like a big hotel in Hawaii. And he had a lovely wife, Patty, at the time, and him and my wife connected. Patty's wife and Annette connected. And he sat back in the living room, and the living room was massive. 
And he sat with me and he said, um, I feel so comfortable with you. So I said to him, I'm not sure at the moment. He said, I'd love to offer you the job. I said, well, he said, well, I own a Toyota dealership. And I told him I just got back from England. He said, well, I can give you the new car for coming down. He said, I'll give you a Toyota Supra. You can take it off the showroom floor. I said, well, I appreciate that, Mr. Giles. I said, well, I've got to go back to LA tomorrow to meet Johnny Carson, the interviewer in Malibu. And I wanted to meet Johnny Carson. So I decided to hold off on him. And he said to me, will you commit to me? I said, I'll tell you what, listen, I love the grounds and that. And I love everything about what's going on here. But this interview's been set up. I've got to go. 95%, I'll come to you. And I negotiate the wage. The wage was um, was good money. I'll, I'd be living in, I'd have all his credit cards, the car, and just the wage. The, the wage was like $80,000 in 1987. It was good money. It's quite a lot of money. I thought if I save up like for five years, you know, I'll have half a million. Ten years, I'll have a million dollars to buy at home. And anyway, I said, I'll, I'll be in touch with the agency. Next day, gets up, said to my wife, don't come with me. I'm going to drive to Malibu. Went to a place called Blue Heaven. Johnny Carson's estate. It's called Blue Heaven. Yeah, in Malibu. Went in and met Johnny. I just, I went through the motions with the interview. I really didn't want the job. It's what stuck in my mind was the freedom of having a lovely home in Orange County, but doing this job. So, went back to Zora. She called me that afternoon. She said, what's your decision? I said, "Um, I'll take Orange County. And I moved to Orange County. Moved to Orange County. Goes in the home, in the kitchen. There was a note to me and Annette and two cups and it said, welcome aboard. And it said, for Mr. and Mrs. Giles, this is the, one of the luckiest days of our lives that we've met you. Oh, was that nice? And a note and a month's wages. Um, it was six and a half thousand dollars. And I went, oh, these must be nice people. And so all what I'd gone through. But the problem was I was half exonerated but not exonerated. Uh-oh. I'd been told to keep away, but I wasn't totally exonerated. So it still had a profound effect on my mind. Slated away, yeah. Slated in there. But I knew that I could just get on with it. And I'd changed and I thought about, I had two weeks holiday and I thought I'll go to the Hawaiian Islands. I thought I'll go there. And anyway, I took the job for Mr. Giles. And he'd been in the news big time. His office, his offices were underneath the stairway of the um, the tennis courts. And he had all his pictures on the wall in the Los Angeles Times. 
and I looked at them all, the Hillside Strangler, the Freeway Killer, Martin Luther King's estate he took care of, Richard Breyer when he was Freemason, he was his lawyer, Frank Sinatra's lawyer, he was Frank Sinatra's lawyer, Frank Frank Sinatra Jr., there's a thing when women accuse him for having babies. I don't know what the name of it is. And Terry Giles would defend Frank Sinatra's son. And Giles would always go to Palm Springs. So basically, I started with Giles. I put this curriculum together for the home. And I had to put a menu because... They had um, a wine cellar, a cinema, and they would dine in different places on a Saturday night. And they had this palatial koi pond outside where they overlooked the grounds. And this is where I would serve them at night on the weekends and they'd have all guests over. It was absolutely beautiful. So I started the job. Everything was fine. Gourmet cooking. Everything. Um, I took lessons from... There was a, a private club down in... Um, called The Golden Door in Escondido. Wiseman had actually sent me there when I'd worked for Wiseman for French cooking lessons and he paid for it for me. So, But I didn't give them too much because sometimes you give them too much and they expect too, they expect too much as well so I didn't give too much I always kept a lot back I just started on the job Um, he takes me first week to Garden Grove Toyota he said which car do you want there's a Celica Toyota Supra and and another I said I'll take that the Supra I took the Supra I had a Supra around then as well well in the 90s yeah Yeah. by the last twin turbo thing yeah yeah (laughs) well there was the Celica and there was the Supra so I got the Celica and um, just parked it outside the house. That was my day car for my day off. And then we had another Toyota for the, the chores. So I settled down with him. Doing a lot of entertaining at the weekends. Keeping up on the the um, the grounds. Maintenance, me and my wife. A lot of work involved. It was structured every day. So he told me that there was someone that was coming very important to the grounds. To me, it wasn't significant, but to them, it was significant. And he knew that I was the top quality man that I would save him, me and my wife. And I never questioned him. I just entertained. But this day, he was excited and he'd represented Martin Luther King's family, the estate, he was the lawyer for that. So this day, we, I sort of kept my distance from him. He was very, he was a brilliant lawyer. And I just asked him one day, I said, um, who's the guest this weekend? I said, because you, you're so excited. I've never seen you excited. He said, oh, it's Oprah Winfrey and Stedman. And he said, oh, is he? I said, that'll be nice, won't it? Get to meet Oprah, eh? And he went, yeah. 
Anyway, so I was a little bit excited, like, and it was so, so. She'd just done the movie Colour Purple at the time. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, she'd done that movie with um, Whoopi Goldberg. So he asked me what I was doing. I said, well, we'll do something life for though, because she was always on a diet. And I started laughing. I said, I'll do the nice salmon, eh, with the ginger on the top and that. And I said, I'll do um, a chocolate sundae for her, souffle. And I'll do um, a nice salad and something nice and light. So the dining room, it was all gold silver. It was gold plated. It was absolutely gorgeous. Marble. It was just, it's hard to explain it. It was like out of a movie. Anyway, the night came and we were all set. And we'd had a gazebo on the grounds with all the waterfalls. So when you entered, I entered, I picked up, got up at the gates, two big white gates opened in a limousine. Good evening. How are you? Good evening, sir. Brings them in. Giles is awaiting down at the gazebo. That's what they did. And then I brought them down. And Oprah was like that, looking at the grounds, going, isn't this beautiful? Absolutely beautiful. And I was watching Oprah. I was watching Stedman. They were watching everything. And she looked at me and she went, are you the butler? I went, yes. And I said, my wife works with me. Oh, it's a beautiful place. I said, yeah, we keep it beautiful. And... They sat down, they had a drink, and then my wife went back to the kitchen to get it all ready in the main house, and then eventually they'd sit down, and they were talking business about Mandela in, in Africa. You know, you could hear certain things, but I wasn't that interested, in it. I just did my job. Then we'd done the salmon, we did the dessert, and they had coffee. And Mr. Giles was always drinking his wine, the Pouli Fousse. That was his favourite white wine, Pouli Fousse. And next thing, the door opened. And she comes in to the kitchen. And she said to me, this was absolutely beautiful. And she said to me, where are you from? I said, Liverpool. She went, that was the most amazing meal I've ever had. So we started doing some banter with her. Thought I'll let her down here. Said, how's your show going? She went, it's great. I said, yeah, I'll watch you now and again on my break here. She went, do you? I said, yeah. I said, do you want me on the show? She started laughing. (laughs) 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 And I started laughing with her. And I said, I can go on the show, you know, I'll tell you some stories about Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she started laughing. And she started laughing. She went, how long have you been? I said, I've been a butler all my life, you know, apart from what I've done in the past. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking nuts. She said, oh, you're amazing. So anyway, anyway, she stayed the night, actually. She stayed the night, and then the next day I took care of her. And I gave them breakfast, took care of it instead. And they had lunch and then the limousine come. And she'd come like every month. Wow. And I got to know her. And she was, uh, I found her to be a nice woman. That's the way I found her. A lot of people say different. And um, I just carried on and we carried on with the Giles having all these experiences. And then Terry was doing a trial 
he'd gone out and there was a guy, um, he was called the Fred Bar Douglas murder in Orange County. It was very famous where he'd gone out, this guy, committed murder and Terry Giles had got him off with the murder. He went out again. Did another one. He did another one, but she didn't die. He chopped the girl's arms off. Hold on, this is our guy from um, Joey Torres' interview. Is it? Yeah. He was in prison with this guy, Larry something. I don't know his name. Yeah, because the guy said to him, um, you know, you chopped her arms off and she got, like, so much money. And, and yeah. he said, um, well, the bitch can't spend it, can she? Yeah. That's what the, the killer the, yeah. he said in prison to this guy. Yeah. yeah. That was probably the case. Yeah. Isn't that so coincidental, Sean? Yeah. Very coincidental. Scary guy, the killer. Yeah, he was. He, yeah. he was. So what happened with Teddy Giles, he was the greatest criminal lawyer with another guy called John Barnett, mm. which I'd meet John later on when, in, after I'd have some trouble in Los Angeles. I'd meet John down the line. He was going to, def- he actually defend, he will, de- I'll tell you the story when he, he defends me. And Teddy Giles had gone to come to the conclusion that, oh, I've had enough of defending killers. And he quit criminal law. And he moved into an area of corporate law where he was very well known in the world as one of the greatest lawyers from Pepperdine University you could ever go to. Anyway, he took this case and it was um, computer land in the 80s. And how I know about the cases because they shared it with me and I got to look after the owner of Computerland and he was the fifth richest man in the world and his name was Bill Millard. So he was coming to the house and Terry consulted me to tell me that, Terry, can you do your best? I said, well, of course. So Bill Millard and his team, Ed Faber and all of them, were coming and there was a lawsuit at the San Francisco courthouse where they were getting sued or something was going on in the trial. Anyway, I took care of my lad and his wife and he had a daughter, Barbara. She was the CEO of Computerland. Terry had told him to step down and then Barbara would take over. And she would become the CEO. So they had the trial. Went on for quite a while. They'd all come back to the house at the weekends, be in the pool, having hamburgers, having an extra, you know, pool if you say wine. Then they'd get ready. They'd go back, fly a private plane back to San Francisco. And then the trial would resume. Anyway, they came in, the verdict came in. Terry Giles won the biggest lawsuit in history. Oh. 360 million won the lawsuit they all came back to the house and they were drinking champagne I tell you he'd come up to me Mr Giles and he said to me I said how did you do so yep we won the case I said congratulations he said and um, Bill Millard's very impressed with you he talks about you all the time I said that's good isn't it I didn't think nothing of it just was nothing. 
Um, he told me, he said, Terry, we'll be going away in a few days. We're flying on a private plane to, to the coast of Australia, to an island called Hamilton Island. Very exclusive. Two days later, they'd gone out for meals and that, and Terry owns a club in Newport Beach called Magic Island. It was a restaurant and it was a magic show. I had access to that. I could go there any time I want. I did train one of the chefs there and the manager how to run it. And anyway, Terry come down this morning and he said to me, Terry, we're going away for a month. The house is yours. And I was so tired. And he said, Bill Millard's going to come over to see you. He wants to thank you. And he, he said to me, Teddy, thanks. He said, go down to the club and have what you want. Take your friends, champagne, do what you want. I said, nah, I think I'll just have, I'll, I'll just play a bit of tennis. That's all I'll do. Because I was so tired. Anyway, Bill Millard came over and his wife. And he stood there and he thanked me in Annette for the service that we, they gave us. Wow. That I'd gave them. And... He gave me an envelope with ten thousand dollars in it. He said to me, Teddy, here's the ten thousand. It was in an envelope. He went, This is for you. And he actually made a comment and he said, I've had the best butlers. He said, You are the finest butler I have ever seen. What and a compliment. Left. What a left, compliment. yeah. They left and they went to Hamilton Island. And I was left with a net and we had the whole place to ourselves. But we were too tired. You couldn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But it was brilliant. Yeah, but it was about to turn sour a few years as I went on. It sounds like the next one's challenging with the Catholic bishop. Yeah, well, what happened there, Sean, is my wife had got pregnant in the Gileses and I was so happy because we had lost a baby in 1984-85 when I was at Max Factors and she was four months pregnant and we'd lost that and so now my wife had told me that she was pregnant and I was delighted so we got the heartbeat that was the most significant thing that what I told you was the heartbeat and we get to the heartbeat and I'm over the moon. We go and tell the Gileses and they're unhappy because they didn't have kids mm. and they didn't want kids. So next thing, after all these years, he said to me, Terry, I'll have to get a new couple. And I said, hang on a minute. I'll be your manager. I'll hire another butler and you'll have it. He said, no, but we want Annette as well because she played a big role with his wife. So I honestly think that Terry Giles, him and his wife had had an agreement that they didn't have children. I live next door and they don't want a child on the property for insurance purposes. So that position... A month later ended, mm-hmm. after all them years. But it was a great experience. 
that I had with him. It was absolutely unbelievable. And we parted ways. And then I head out. And then I go back into the real world. And I buy a little home in Santa Ana. And I'd kept in touch with the window cleaner. I'd hired him. And he asked me to go in business with him. And I did do eventually. But I got another position from Dora again. And it was actually in Orange County. And it was the bishop for the Catholic Church. Todd Brown. In Orange County. That there was a school called Marta Day High School in Santa Ana. The biggest Catholic school this side of the Mississippi. And they wanted a, a cook. They called themselves, they want a cook. Well, I'm not a cook. I was a chef. A cook to me is like McDonald's. So I'd gone to the school and the principal was John Wiling. And he told me about the house that Mr. Todd Brown had sent me. And he was the major decision maker. And he hired me to be the chef at the house. And then what I found is it was very, un, very unusual. There was a priest there and he was dying of AIDS. He was actually dying of AIDS. And they asked me to keep it quiet. So because of my loyalty, I kept it quiet. And there was times that I, I fed him. I fed the priest. And I kept quiet and used to feed them all. Like every night. Like I went in from four to nine. It's like part time. And then I used to watch the priest. And they'd be, he had the intravenous and it was a white shake they were giving him in his arm and he was dying. And later on in life, they used to mock society. They would mock society and how things were. And we had a girl who was a cleaner and she was a little bit disabled and the standards of her cleaning weren't up to theirs. And I picked up on this in a conversation and I thought, this is not working here. And it was always in the back of my mind how we, how we got the AIDS at the time. Later on in life, he'd been in, involved in um, sexual abuse because there was a lawsuit in Orange County and in his name was mentioned. And you know who defended the case? Giles. Giles. Teddy Giles defended. It was a $100 million case. He defended it. So I carried on. And stayed with them a while and then eventually I left. But my baby was born. And I bought this little house in Santa Ana. 
Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. Many of our viewers have saved thousands using Rocket Money to save the money off subscriptions they didn't even know about. Rocket Money cancels subscriptions for people that are tricky and time-consuming. Rocket Money also alerts you to subscriptions that can save you money. Try it free for 30 days. Just enough time to try it. And then completely forget about it. In fact, over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. You could be wasting money and not even realising it. Rocket Money helps you find those forgotten subscriptions so you can stop paying for ones you don't use. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, rocketmoney.com slash Sean. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Enjoy the podcast. And then Kelly was born. And we had this little baby. And I was in the hospital and I was in, down the street was all, all, all the gangs, the Santa Ana gangs. And they were all in the, no, the hospital in the Western Medical Center with the, with the gunshot wounds. And on the top floor, they had the maternity ward. And he, he, you know, they heard all the sirens coming in. Oh, it's a gunshot wound. You know, all the Mexicans fighting in the barrio down the street. And I, I, I lived there close to it. And, um, Anyway, Kelly was born, and it was beautiful. It was 1989. Shout out to Kelly. <laughs> yeah. All right, Kel. All right, love. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Oh. So I didn't have any insurance, and they came round for the bill, and the bill was 15000 and my wife was in the bed, and... They're asking for the bill. And I'm going, we haven't got it. I did have money, Sean, but I wasn't going to give that kind of money to an hospital. I thought to myself, I'll do a deal with them later on if it goes on my credit. And um, it was 15 grand. Later on, it come back to haunt me when I bought another house. It was on my credit. And I'd done a deal with them. And I paid them seven and a half thousand. And then eventually it all cleaned itself up. So then I carried on and um, I decided to build the window cleaning business up. So in in Orange County, you've got the north, the central and the south. And I brought this other guy in and two other guys. And I thought, well, let's see how we do the first year. So... I changed the, I came up with an idea and it was called Britannia Windsor Cleaning. And I advertised in the north, the central and the south. Annette was, stayed at home and she'd be the secretary. And I had three guys working for me. And I went out and I marketed it. I had two vans and we did well. The first year, we made it under grand. It was great. Made it under thousand. Living in Santa Ana. Yeah. So, carried on. And 
what happened was I put Kelly in a private school, carried on, but it was always on my mind wanting to be a butler. Um, you know, just it was always in my system, the butler, the butler. I'd met so many people on private homes. They were custom homes all over Orange County. And I'd met a guy called Bob Citron and his wife, Terry. And I'd actually go into these homes and I was very trustworthy. And I, I ran the old place and they wrote the check and they just left us in the houses. And they said, lock the door up and that they knew we were after they got to know us. So this one particular guy, his name was Bob Citron, and he was the county treasurer in Orange County. And I got to know him, he was a bit, very miserable man, but Terry was lovely. Then all of a sudden, all over the news in Orange County, it was the taxes of all the homes that you had your taxes, you'd write your cheque to him on the taxes on the house. Well, can you imagine the money in Orange County? Well, that was pooled, and that went into the stock market with Merrill Lynch. So their returns that they were getting off that money was quite substantial. But all of a sudden, it was about to go wrong for Bob. He got you confidence. Then all of a sudden, the money was lost in the stock market. And what they said, he got arrested. County Treasurer Bob Citron gets arrested in Orange County. He's arrested. He's put out on police bail. It's all over the news, all over the world. Orange County has gone bankrupt. I don't even remember this. I do, yeah. But that was Bob Citron. Wow. So Terry, I was in the house. All the news used to come to the house. She had no one to talk to. And she relied on me a bit. And I said, when does he go to court? And she go, he goes every week. And I said, why are you going out the front of the house? Into the media? And she said to me, Terry, do you think you could help him? This poor guy was lost. He was frail. He had these lawyers that were just, I don't know, they were okay, but they never had the common sense what we would have done, Sean. So I decided to step in and I said, well, so I sat down with Bob and I said to him, do you want me to guard you? And he went, yeah, if you could help me. He, he, didn't, he couldn't answer that question. I said, let me help you out. He said, the day you go to court, what we're going to do, we're going to go out the back door. You're not going through the door and then the following you to the courtroom making a show of you. So when I made the agreements, it was in um, a very exclusive place on Sharon Lane in Santa Ana, this home he had in Floral Park. 
opposite side to that, you had all these infested barrios of the gang members. And on the other side, you've got Floral Park, Bob Citron. It was nuts. So anyway, I looked out and I'd done a search of the, the old street. And at the time, I had a brand new Ford Taurus. So I went to the neighbours next door. And I went to the back of the street and I clocked the house. And I went to them. And I said to them, excuse me, my name is um, Terry Mugan. I'm the bodyguard for Mr. Citroen. And they looked at me. I said, he's getting harassed every time he goes to court. I said, could, we, could you help us out? Or would you be willing to? And they said, yes. What can we do for you? Most Americans in that neighbourhood... And the old Americans, going back in them generations, would help you. A lot of them wouldn't get involved, Sean. They said yes. I said, well, see this garden here, see this fence. I want to take some of the plywood out and we make it a gate. We'll access his garden into your garden. My car will be in the front of your house and we'll bring him out the back way. Then he's in the car with me and his wife and I'll, I'll take him to the Orange County Courthouse. So he called me his bodyguard. <laughs> I wasn't really his bodyguard. <laughs> but in the essence where I showed him common, what common sense was. <laughs> and I just took him to court every week. <laughs> so in that case, what happened then was he... He'd never done anything wrong. He'd never done any self-gain. he never stole anything. He had great lawyers. So we're in the house one day. went on for a while. I carried on with my life. During the winters and I carried on. And every week I did it. Went to his home. Sat with the mad coffee. Well, this day, Terry said to me on a Friday, we'd brought him home. And he'd been in to see the judge. And he'd come out and he said, Terry, just drop me off at the house. So I took him to the, the neighbours. We went in the back. We went in the kitchen. And I said to him, is everything okay? He went, yeah. He said, I got my final sentence today. And I said, what is it? He said, it's 12 months at the food bank. That, that was my imprisonment. Because he didn't steal nothing for his own gain. Sounds like Merrill Lynch encouraged him to gamble it. Yeah, probably. Probably at the time. We didn't know the, the fundamentals of the case. So what happened is he got 12 months and then they still became my friends. Every Christmas they'd send me this beautiful photograph of the two of them together. Oh. I've still got them. Oh. And, you know, they were really nice people. And then I just carried on with my life. Until the traveller's checks come. Oh, my God. Ah, oh, this was one bad mistake on my part. After all that? I faltered. I really faltered. I was actually... I was actually ashamed of myself for doing this. Well, there was a heist in Liverpool and there was $3 million taken off the docks. 
I was involved with five of the men who had been charged with that. One had died in a car accident in Liverpool, Jenny McGibbon. The other friends, were not- some of them were notorious. Um, Jerry Conchie, John's brother, he was... He was in it. One of my other friends was in it, was big. And a, a, a Cockney that had been arrested in London, Alan Wells, Wellesley. So in the prison, um, I'd been asked when I got out, would I mind some of the traveller's checks for a friend? And my share of it would be Compensation of 25,000. But then you did what you did. And I kept them. And my wife had brought them to America. With her. And I had them in a safety deposit box in a bank. So. A friend of mine had come home from come over from Liverpool and I asked him to bring him some of the the old-fashioned licences. The green licence to copy and I'll, I'll get a few of them. So basically, I had 25 grand of American Express and I started cashing them in Orange County. So every time you write a cheque, it's a felony. I didn't know that, Sean. I've got Kelly. I've bought a house. Making a hundred grand on the windows. And I've faltered. I've defaulted. So I was getting away with it. Go to all the malls, cash them in, cash the mail. I take the money, put the money in the safety deposit box. For some reason, the Saturday morning, I got up and I was with a friend and I thought, well, where's the money flowing? It's in Disneyland, isn't it? All the registers, the tills, all the cash everywhere. I can knock these out easy. Takes a taxi with a dear friend to Disneyland. Next thing, cashing them in. Takes one woman. She didn't like the signature. She calls it in. I get surrounded on Main Street in Disneyland by six coppers from the Disneyland police. They took me to the the police department in Disneyland. The Hannah Iron police came and got me. They come in Disneyland, put me in the back of a police car, and was taking me to Anaheim Police Station. I swear on Kelly's life, 
As they're bringing me out of the police station, Mickey and Minnie are walking past. And fucking look at me. <laughs> they fucking look at me. And I just put my fucking head down. And I went, the most unhappiest place in the fucking world is Disneyland. <laughs> I've been fucking nicked in Disneyland. <sighs> the fucking banker rob has been nicked in fucking the most happiest place in the world. It's fucking Disneyland, lad. I get fucking nicked. So I'm in the police station in Anaheim. And um, the CID come in. But what's in my mind is the three million iced in Liverpool. Are they going to connect this? Few of my friends got not guilty. Alan Wells got eight years. Jerry Conti got five years. There was some guilt there. And I went, are they going to get me on this? So anyway, I goes in the police station and I got an OR, my own bail. And I got out with them. It was three felonies. Because when you take a check into a private property, Sean, that's breaking and entering. You're burgling Disneyland. So I got done for burgling on Disneyland. And then I got done for the traveller's check. And I was fucked. I was fucking knackered. Got home. Had a lovely home. Lovely cars. And I went... I'm wanted in England. I'm still wanted officially. And I'm nicked in America. What have I done? Let myself down. Anyway, I retained an attorney by the name of John Barnett. He was the, the attorney that represented the police officers in the, in the, in the, the, um, the Rodney King beating. And I went to see John and he knew me from Terry Giles. He was Terry Giles' partner. He'd been to the house for dinner. I thought, I've got to get John Barnett. Anyway, the three felonies would add up to over four years. In jail. However, I was having another problem at the time with one of a neighbour, an American crazy neighbour. Um, he was jealous of me, and he used to bully his his mother next door. And he knocked on the door one night and told me to move my trucks over. I moved them. They knocked on the door again. And I said, excuse me, I said, my daughter's asleep. Don't be knocking on the door, mate. I've just moved him. He fucks off, he comes back, knocks on the door again. So I just grabbed him by the throat and I pushed him out to the street. And I kept hold of his throat and I, I said to him, I'll fucking break your jaw next time. His mother's standing there watching it. They called the police. 
seven police cars come on a 911 call. So I defended myself in front of the police. I went, no, man. And, you know, the old Liverpool came out of me. I didn't back down to these cops. This fucking motherfucker here, and he's, he's a cunt and everything. He's bullying. Bullies his manners. And so next thing, they said to him, do you want to press charges? He said, yeah. Fucking gets arrested again. For an assault. I'm going, fuck this. John Barnett told John, you know, it's classed as violence in America. It's two things that you don't tolerate, as you know, violence and drugs. Next thing, goes to court. So they put them together. Anyway, I was going to leave for England and do one. That, nah, I'm just stay here. Anyway, comes up the case after a few months in January. The judge said, okay, the sentence is four and a half years. And I went to John, that's too much, man. That's too much. He said, well, if you can do restitution for $25,000 and then pay the victim back 5000 for the assault, we'll give you two. So I, I disagreed with it. Anyway, cut a long story short, I got 18 months. Drifted the whole thing? No. No, I didn't do the whole thing, Sean. I agreed there, and then the judge said, what do you want to do? I said, well, you, I said, you can take me now. So they took me. Said goodbye to Annette. Kelly wasn't there. Kelly was three. And we had to tell Kelly that her dad was going away on a ship. So here I am. I'm going to America in jail, to jail. I could have done one, but I stayed. Goes in the jail. You know what it's like, Sean, all the Mexicans and that. I'm fucking white guy, you know, this white guy stands out. Gangbangers. Yeah, everybody. I thought. But I knew I was tougher than them. And I'm going to show it when I get in there from the Borstal, from London prisons I'd been in. And gets in there and, you know, it's all big tanks, elevators in the Orange County prison. Well, it's a jail, they don't call it prison. And two guys are upstairs, gets all my kit and that, and we're going in the tanks. And two of them go, um, yeah, we'll take this guy upstairs with a white guy. I just fucking looked at them and I went, you know when I get upstairs? I'm going to fucking take the two of you. I'm going to fucking kill the both of you. <laughs> and he went, wow. So the guard looked at me. 
And one of them shouted, you an Irish gangster? With the accents. And I went, yeah, I'm an Irish gangster. So they took me and I got segregated into another tank. And I went in the tank with them. And then it was started then. Stayed in Orange County for quite a few months. And um, I established myself to shadow box and all the Mexicans loved that. Got the towels at night and all that, you know, to earn respect. Toilet rolls in socks. Yeah, everything. I'd done it all. And then um, I got shipped out to um, an open prison, James Music. Get shipped out there. And I think I've got five or six months left. So I goes in the jail this morning. They took us at three in the morning. Then they got us back up at, at five to all the music, the Viet music. Dang, 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 dang. All this music. It was crazy. So I'd made a mistake that the next day, you, you know, they give you them big black boots. And I'd made a mistake. I put my foot on this guy's bed. And he was about six foot three. And he said to me, Hey, motherfucker. Get your foot off my bed, I'll kick the fucking goddamn shit out of you. So I went like that, I just ignored him. So on the, com- the commissary, I bought cigarettes to... I just bought 20 cigarettes. So we goes to recess this morning, the next morning. And put two towels in the back of my pants. Give one guy a cigarette. Got a match and a litter for him. The other fellas looking at me like that. Said, you smoke, man? He went, yeah. Says, yeah. Got the match. Put it down and put the towel and just went like that around me. And I just threw a right hand and I hit him and knocked him out. And there was two black guys there and they went, wow. He just went, woof. So next thing, I said, get him up. Took him in on the bed. I said, go and tell the guards he fell over and banged his head. And as I walked away, I said to them all, any fucking messing out of any of you, that's what you're getting. You're going to fucking behave yourselves, the lot of you's. So I had actually established myself in the prison and um, they took him out. There was a little bit of discrepancy. They thought that I'd done it. I was questioned. I said, no, he fell over. Yeah, and I said, he he banged his jaw and his head as he went down (laughs) and everything was okay. I got away with it. Good. Yeah, I got away with it. Carried on with the sentence. And I went on the fire crew. I went on this fire crew. I was on the fire crew and um, outside cutting fire lines. And then um, got in. And then I was finally released. Yeah, done about nine months. And then as I came out, one of them said to me, one of the prison officers said to me, are you a citizen? And I just said, yeah. I just said, yeah, I'm a citizen. 
You know why? They said my green card. Deportation. Deportation. Yeah. Deportation. Gonna get nicked. So I just carried on, come out. Then all of a sudden, a week later, where I'm living, the guy next door walked past him. He's got a gun. I actually seen the gun as I walked past the window and he had the gun like that. And I walked past and I looked at it and he was staring at me. I walked down the end of the alleyway. I come back round, went back in the house. And I said to my wife, eat a minute, come with me. So get Kelly. And we went out. And I went, he's got a gun. She went, as he said, yeah. I said, he might do me. So next thing, I said, where's, call the nearest real estate agent up. I said, and put this house on the market right now. So we packed up, left the house on the market, and I moved to Irvine that week, and I got an apartment in Irvine, and I moved to Irvine to get out of Santa Ana. I think within a month we sold the house, got my money back and I made a few quid. And then um, I set up buying another home in Irvine and then put Kelly in school. Then I just carried on and carried on. And then I kept in touch with um, Brody in England and um, I decided to one day go back. So I got a few jobs, small jobs as butler. Um, one was on the coast in Orange County for the, these multimillionaires, St. John Nitz. And I ran their home for them. Kobe Bryant lived next door to them, the basketball player. I used to say hello to Kobe now and again. And it, it, it didn't work out that job. And then I just carried on. Just carried on with my life doing the window cleaning. And then I just put Kelly in school, private school. Carried on. And then I decided the years were getting on. I decided that I'd go home. 1996. 86. Yeah. And, um, well, no, but it was after that. You're going to file a lawsuit against the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah. So, I decided to go to England, settle down, bought another home in Irvine, and I goes home. But we dad, I had a problem. I was working on a home, and there was $300,000 gone missing out of an account. So I had this house where I was like the butler manager and it was on the in Irvine on the lake and 
this London crew came in and they were fixing the house up, putting new cabinets in, putting all this stuff in, new carpets. And I was in charge. So next one morning, the FBI surrounded the house and stopped me and took me into the Irvine Police Department and said, what's going on? I said, well, I hired them from the Yellow Pages. They'd gone in and they took 300000 out of this account. And they said to me, was any of them checks go to you, Terry? I went, no. So what they were insinuating, Sean, that I was the facilitator. Conspiracy. Conspiracy to facilitate. The FBI had said to me, if we thought that you had anything with this case, we'd arrest you right now. And they never. They never arrested me. So I decided to get out the way a little bit. I decided to travel to England and I went to England and I was with Kelly and my brother and I was staying at my brother's and we were going to Southport and As we were driving, I said to my brother, stop over here at this home. I want to show Kelly where it was, where I went to school. It was St. George's approved school. So we goes on the yard and my brother got all nervous. He got really nervous and he went, no, you've got to get off here. You've got to get off. Next thing... We got off and he was in the car and he was dead nervous and he went to under investigation. I said, what for? He said, oh, they've all been arrested for sexual abuse. Then he said to me, the police are looking for you. The police are looking for you. So... I decided, we had our lunch, it was playing on my mind. I had a bottle of champagne. So I decided to get in touch with the police. But before I did that, I'd gone to Brody. And I asked them to do a search warrant. Before I did it. He does the search warrant in his office. And... It, and they had stamped on it, agents, either them or the police. I paid £25 for the de- Department of Prosecutions. We went and had a cup of tea, me and Rob Brody. It came back. Urgent, no warrants. He just looked at me and said, I told you, didn't I? <laughs> to stay away. I was exonerated. Went bang. Now, the police on the Whittle was set up by um, 
Operation Care. They were set up. Went to see some lawyers and I got involved with suing the Nugent Care Society, which is formerly the Catholic Church, on three of the homes. St. George's, St. Aidan's and St. Joseph's, where I'd served 12 years for the mental abuse and physical abuse. And then there was a lot of sexual abuse that most of them were arrested. Most of them. So when Operation came to me, Operation Care, they came to me and they interviewed me. All the children hadn't seen each other for 30 odd years. And I had said to them, is everybody telling the story right? He went, yes. So then we had to get in touch with the solicitors. Cantor Jackson. Then there was other solicitors in Manchester. So many involved. Then that started. That was taking like 14 years of my life up. To sue them. Backwards and forwards to England. It was a holy nightmare and um, I'd gone back and then they wanted me back again, wanted me back and then it really got heavy. They told me that I had to go to Rampton Hospital for the criminally insane to see three forensic psychiatrists. I drove to Rampton as an outpatient and I sat in a room with three psychiatrists that was assigned by the court. They were for the courts, they weren't for me. That was their defence. And I'd gone in with them and my plan was the first question I had for them, have you seen the reports from 1981? Dr. Messina, Dr. Nelson and Dr. Ralph Obler. And they said, yeah. In them reports, it was said I was misused and I was abused in the homes. So... They had no way that they could defend their own their own attorneys. <laughs> so the interview lasted six hours, and I actually said to the Dr. Millen, "What are you looking for?" He said, "We're looking for split personality because of the abuse. You would get a split personality." And I said, "I don't have that." So he said to me, you've done the Bex the Bex inventory, haven't you, Teddy? And I went, yeah. The Bex inventory is a scale of psychological and psychiatry where the levels of anxiety and the levels of depression either moderate, high, or extremely high. 
Mine came in extremely high with the score. So on that score, that meant that I had to be hospitalised. So Dr. Millen had said to me, Terry, it looks like you need to go into hospital. And I said to him, no, I'm going to be all right. I said, it's because of this case now. And he let me go. They let me go. I calmed down. And the lawsuit took about 14 years. I went through it. But in the meantime, I was getting angry and then I was sent to the NHS in Manchester for another evaluation. Each school had a psychological and a psychiatric evaluation. Then I was sent to the NHS, the social services, to be evaluated again. Basically, the three evaluations had come up all the same. Severe, chronic, post-traumatic stress disorder, which meant I had to be hospitalised. But I was functional in the world, and they were concerned about me. So I just got on with it. So throughout them 14 years, I decided to get a doctor in Orange County. His name was Dr. Daniel Amen, that he represented the F- NFL for the head injuries to prove my case against the Nugent Care Society. I paid approximately $5,000 to be examined. Now, it wasn't an examination where it was talking to us, uh, a, a psychiatrist or a cognitive psychotherapist. This was machines that would go inside the brain, the left lobe, the right lobe, and they'd have all these machines and they could see it. And actually, in the, in the amygdala in the brain, and the perpetual gland, they could see all the anxiety in the brain. And Dr. Daniel Amen is one of the best in the world. So he did me brain and he came out and he, he said to me, you're suffering from... Then he also gave tests for ADD and ADHD and bipolar disorder. And it came up that there was ADD, ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder, bad um, intrusive thoughts, and cyclothermia. So in bipolar, in the factory of bipolar, you have a mental illness. You have bipolar 1, bipolar 2. Cyclothermia is a mild bipolar. So he sent me to a a professor of psychiatry 
Dr. Mark Zeaton, renowned best professor in California, to be examined to support my case. He examines me, costs me thousands to prove my case against the church. While that was going on, the police had given information to a guy called Christian Walmar, who had wrote a book on the history of the abuse in children's homes. We've interviewed him. Have you? Yeah. Remember? He uh, featured in our Jimmy Savile documentary. Did he? Yeah. Oh, my God. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura dot com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info. Also linked in my description box on this YouTube version or scan the QR code on the screen. Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. Well, let me elaborate on this. Please do, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's coincidence, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely beautiful man. Yeah. So the police in on in the care... Operation Akira told them the most strongest man we've got is Terence Mugan. He's a survival. He hasn't died. He's the greatest. And he has more mental strength than most people. So Christian Walmart calls me and he wrote the book, The Forgotten Children, all about the care homes. And we're building this rapport backwards and forwards. And he asked me questions, Terry, is it true? And I said, of course it is. I wouldn't doubt. I said, the only way that it wouldn't be true, if there's a kid that's doing a life sentence where he'd been injured by in the care home, where he wants to get back at his perpetrator and say it was him and get him. And I I couldn't see that. I could have said things to Christian. I could have said things to Operation Care where I said that I was raped by certain men that were being arrested for rape. I could have said things, but I just told the truth. I could never get a man to say that he raped me and then he would get a life sentence or a 20-year sentence. And that was the situation in one of the cases where Christian was asking me. So we became friends with Christian and I was sending him emails backwards and forwards. I was actually going to bring them and show you them, <laughs> but I 
thought I'd give you sufficient evidence in my life. And I do have them. So I kept in touch with him. And he's, um, he's from London. And then he became a member of Parliament. And I kept in touch with him. So I wrote a, a story of my life. And I wrote a poem. And it was about pain. From when I was a child. And I'd sent him that. The pain of my life. Each year was significant to pain, what I'd gone through. And he had said to me, I have never in my life met anyone like you. He said, Teddy, keep going. Keep going, my friend. And then I found out later he became a member of Parliament. And sometimes I often think about sending him an email. And I think he's wrote some books from that. I've got his email if you want it. Yeah, I have it. I have yeah. his email. Yeah. Yeah, I've got his email. Yes, yeah, isn't that coincidental? Yeah. That is really coincidental. We went to his house in London. Really lovely guy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Lovely man. Mm. Arsenal supporter. <laughs> I was supposed to meet him in Wales in 2001 <laughs> when Liverpool played in Cardiff <laughs> and uh, it didn't, didn't work out. Yeah. So just went on and then and then I came across another incident when I was going to see a friend when I was having my lunch with Operation Care in the city centre and they told me some stories and I, and I said, I can elaborate on that. And one was a guy who would, his name was Williams he was the former headmaster of St. George's. When I was there, it was Mr. Hickey. So I'd gone to see a friend up in Southport and I told him I was filing, joining the lawsuit, the class action lawsuit. And he said to me, what lawsuit? He said, I was in that home. He said, I was in there two years before you. And he said, the headmaster's name was Williams. I said, I've just spoke about him. He's going to be arrested. And he actually told me that he'd been raped. So I said to him, I said, he lives in Formby. This guy. So I organised a plan that I would kidnap him, get him. And I was scared of my friend a little bit. That I had these, what you call intrusive thoughts, that I was going to get him, go in his house at night, tie him up put him in the boot of a car and then I was going to put a rope around his neck and I was going to tie it to the car and I was going to drive him down the street at 50, 60 miles an hour and I was going to kill him. But I always remember I'd, I'd counselling from a doctor in California, Caroline Way, and she said to me, 
Cherry, they're going to get what's coming to them. They will get what's coming to them. And I pulled out and she said, you need peace. What goes around will come around. Unfortunately, this man was never arrested. He was too old and the statute of limitations had run out in time with him. Often the case. Yeah. And um, eventually the case was settled. Well, actually, they'd done two trials in London. Case A and Case B, Boy A and Boy B. And what they found, they found them guilty. And the judges went back and said, you've got to settle the cases. But the cases at the time put you in a, in a case where there's different levels of violence, different levels of abuse, where it gives you a statue of how much money you're going to get what you're going to get. In my case, it was, they'd offered me £22,000. If I would have known this in the beginning, I wouldn't have been part of the lawsuit. There was no way I wouldn't have done it. But one of the reasons why I did it was to change the system in Britain that they couldn't touch any children in the future. Good. And the law had changed that they couldn't touch actually a child ever again. And the laws were changed. And we... It took me all them years. It was how an effect. And then, you know, I had a lot of bad things going through my head. But I just, I just got on with it. And got over it. You know, it's still there. And we got a lousy 22,000 quid. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And probably today in Britain it's still going on. I don't know what goes on today. Because they get slaps on the wrist. There's no... Some join the church because they know they'll just get the high-priced lawyers to protect them. Yeah. It's, you know... So there came a point when temptation, you refused... Some uh, criminal underworld members from Liverpool tried to get you back. Yeah, I'd gone back to Liverpool and um, it was constant temptation from crime families and a lot of them had become millionaires through importation. So I decided to go to meet eight of them in New York City to see what it was all about. That was the temptation. So I went to New York and stayed at the um, Marriott Marquis and our alibi was to go and watch a fight. It was Prince Nassim versus Kevin Kelly at Madison Square Garden. I'd booked the eight of them in under my name, under my credit card, to protect them. Sat with them. And what he heard was like incredible. 
Up until then, they had smuggled about 25 million in through Morocco, through South America, and etc. And I was looking at them. I knew three of them. I didn't know five of them, but they dared of me. And the other three had said, no, there's only one man. It's Teddy Morgan. That's what they thought. And what was my position? Investor, carry money, negotiator. So I sat with them. And it was a bit crazy. $6,000 rounds of crystal. Observations, just watching them. And one of them, I told one of them, I said, these are the, f- these five that you've got, I've never robbed a bar of fucking chocolate out of a shop. And all of a sudden, they've got big homes, they've got everything. I said, tell you what, lad, I would not like to get caught with these five because you're fucking going down, la. You're going down big time. So my advice is get away from them and go on your own and stay with the other guys that we know from when we were kids. And eventually they would get it. Five million would go missing. So they asked me to come fly me home to Liverpool. And I did. I'd left them in New York, made no decision, flew back to Liverpool and I'd met in a hotel in Liverpool, sat with them again. Guy asked me to take 650,000 quid to Spain with one of the guys that I knew. I said, let me think about it. The only person I ever thought about was Kelly. Good. I thought about Kelly. And I just went like that. I went, no, I can't do it. And it's very hard for a man like me to say that. But I've got my life. And I've got my daughter. So I declined it. So anyway, he took the money, one of them, down to Spain. And I'd been asked to go to Spain. And he, one of them got caught. He got 10 years. Got 10 years. And I went like that. I went home that night. And I was staying with my sister-in-law. And I've known her since she was young. I knew her dad. And she looked at me and I'd been in the city centre and I'd had a suit on and a combi. And I walked in the door and she said to me, where have you been? And she would never say that to me. She went, I know where you've been. She pointed and she went, it's not for you. Look at you. You're a smart man. 
she put them words into my head. She was the one that I listened to. Never listened to my wife. Never listened to any of the gangsters. But I listened to her, and she meant it. She said, you've got a lovely daughter. And it was the what? It was how she said it to me. She said, look at you. She said, you're a lovely man. And then um, I pulled out. Good. Later on in life, um, I'd met, I'd, I'd, I'd know some of the the families, um, you know, the showers, the lambs. Yeah, we've had Michael showers on. Yeah, I met Michael when I, I drove in his Rolls Royce with him. When at Jenny McGivens' funeral, um, I've never seen a crowd as gangsters together ever. Yeah, I was in the front seat with Michael in his Rolls Royce. Yeah, when Jenny died, and one of the guys when I was a kid was um, one of the most powerful families is the Whitney family. Les Whitney, he was my best mate when I was young. And I'm surprised. All his family become one of the most feedest <laughs> drug dealers. Importation. So who's Chester Hanks? Oh, Chester. Chester Hanks is the son of Tom Hanks. What happened on the 101? I've been on the 101 many times. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my dear. God. Well, I've just been over to Glendale and I'd gone to a Japanese restaurant and I was with um, some friends And I decided to get back early because it was a Friday. It was Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. So I get on the freeway. I'm driving. I've always drove a Mercedes for the... If you got it in LA, you know, it'll protect you. It's well built. So... Gets on the 101. Well, actually, it's the, the 34 Glendale to the 101 to the 110. So I got blocked in and I couldn't get on. It was that bad, the, the traffic. So I'm driving. I can't get in. I've been pushed onto the 110 to right downtown Los Angeles. And I look to the right on the off-ramp and sees this car coming on and he's in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And I went, I was watching him. And I thought, I bet he's going to hit me. He's going to hit me. Anyway, he comes behind me and the traffic's slowing I'm slowing down. I'm watching him. I took my eyes off him. Bang. All of a sudden, he hits me. Smashes right into me. I goes forward. 
but I kept my distance in front of the car because I, I just knew this was going to happen. So, my head went back. I came forwards. They said in, that I, I, did, I did the dashboard, TMZ, had made this, and I, I didn't. I, did, I banged my head. I went forwards, and it banged my neck. And this arm getting hold of it, so I think I had nerve damage. So, gets off the freeway. He gets out, Chester. Big kid, dickhead, tattoos all over him, pulls over, tried to help him, said, you're all right, mate? He said, yeah, I'm all right, yeah, man, and all this, you know, like a gangster. And he had the most horrible attitude I've ever seen in my life. So I looked at him, said, give me your documents. And he went... Hey, man, don't call the police. I said, no, man, I won't call the police. I don't do that. I said, leave that car there. And I said, call your parents. I didn't know at the time who he was. I didn't know who the fuck he was. So next thing, um, gets in the car with him. I've seen all the cocaine. Seen all the marijuana. And I went... You're loaded, aren't you? And he went, Don't call the police, man. I've got anxiety. So get all the documents. Photoed a lot of them. I didn't think much about it. Then I decide to go to the hospital in Irvine. Finally gets to the hospital. But as I'm going in the hospital, I get a call from an insurance company. Um, who are you? I said, Mr. Mugan. I said, who did you get hit by? I said, Chester Hanks. Well, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I'm going in the hospital. I don't know my injuries. I'm just going into the emergency room now. Well, can we take a statement now? I said, no, you can't. They knew. So that put red flags up in my head so anyway what happened Sean was I just carried on and then my neck got worse so basically I went to a, a neurosurgeon one of the best in me was from John Hopkins and you've got to be the best so what he'd done, he looked at the, the MRI and he looked at it and he said to me, you need surgery on your neck. And I went, really? He said, yeah, the disc has come out five, milligram, five, five millimetres. Now everybody gets arthritis, everybody gets problems with the neck. But I never had this problem. People get disc bulges, but exaggerated it. That's what it's done. So anyway, I went to Newport Beach and um, got these attorneys. Next thing, 
they'd done these checks on the car. And they said to me, you know who owns this car, don't you? I said, no. He said, Tom Hanks. He's responsible. So, what they done was they said, we're filing a lawsuit against him. Him, his wife, and Chester. Well, next thing, they file a lawsuit, and I'm down in Laguna Beach. And I'm walking down the beach, and a guy walks past me, and he goes, Teddy, you're on the news. So I kept my head down, I kept walking, and went, oh no, here we go. <clears throat> next thing, I get a call, Santa Monica from my niece, and she goes, Teddy, you're all over TMZ. And I went, what? She said, you're all over the news. So what happened is then, I called Kelly and I said to her, will you meet me in um, Cona del Mar? It's between Laguna Beach and Newport. It's a very lovely, isolated, one of the best places in the world to live it is. Where a lot of movie stars live and, you know, Basket Kobe lives down there and all them. Oh, Tiger. Tiger was an old friend of mine, Tiger Woods, yeah. Used to have me breakfast with him, yeah. So we'd go down there and um, I said to Kelly, get the news up. I said, can you Google um, Tom Hanks? I said, put the, the two of us in together. So next thing, it's spreading all over the world. It's going everywhere. Oh, it's going like wildfire. I said, Dad, look at this. And at the time, I felt terrible. But it was just a way of sending a message. Even though you're not a film star, you cannot give your key, the car keys to a child who's under the influence of alcohol and drugs. So the case went on and next thing, it got heavy. You know, he was going into restaurants with Steven Spielberg and the rap came in and they were asking him questions and they were blowing it up on E! News and Huffington Post. And it was like ridiculous, really. It was just media. And I felt sorry for Tom Hanks. So I came in and I'd met his lawyers and we'd done these depositions and they were sort of threatening me in a way, you know, oh, no, it was only this. I said, no, I said, we'll go to the jury. We'll take it to the jury. And then finally I was, after the deposition, I read in the news that he decided, Stephen Malowski, to tell the news that my case will be settled in the future. And he told the Daily Mirror that um, it was exaggerated. And it was just... Because Chester, a few months before, had just come out of rehab. And he had threatened Howard Stern with a gun. He'd done all this. And he used the N-word. 
and he was just absolutely crazy with drugs. And then he done a video saying that he was, I snorted more coke up my nose than anybody. And, you know, it was it was bad news for Tom and Rita, especially Rita, his mother. So what happened is I had a, a bit of trouble with the lawyers and then we came to an agreement that we would go to a courthouse in San Diego to do a mediation and settle the case. And then we went there and it lasted 12 hours and I sort of, I could have kept it going and kept it going and kept it going. But I thought, no, this has got to end here. And I always thought about the better man. And I thought about Tom Hanks and Rita. And luckily, he hadn't been in trouble. And we settled the case. Good. And we signed an, an agreement. We're going to finish then on how your life is now, Terry. But my stomach's rumbling. Can you just get pass me a banana and a coro bar, someone? Thanks. So how is your life now? <laughs> is it still going? Yeah, yeah. We're still going? Yeah, yeah. Um, not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. Except for the surgeries I had my neck that limited me. And um, I'm not doing bad. I'm alive. Mm. Doing okay. Living in Orange County. Mm. You know, in Irvine's not too bad. And... I hope maybe one day um, to come back to Britain and do some work with some institutions here or represent some companies in public speaking for um, children who've lost a way in life. And mental illness is... I'm pretty well educated on mental illness from all the doctors I've met in my life. And a lot of people don't know about it and how to just go around it and how to keep fit and how to control it and, and, and actually to get the right diagnosis. A lot of people are misdiagnosed. That's the problem. So just enjoy my life with Kelly and, you know, seeing that now and again. And so life's pretty good. Would you ever drive up Norlands Lane? Um, actually, when I go up to Liverpool, I'll, I'll be in witness. Because Alan, my nephew, lives there. So I'll be going that area. It doesn't bother me anymore, you know. It's just, it's part of life. I've, uh, I've grown to that. How does it feel telling your story for the first time? Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and I just want people to know is get a message that life of crime doesn't pay for nobody for, well, especially what I've been through and how I suffered throughout my life it's 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 been devastating but the mental strength and how I've survived basically in my life and I'd like if people do see this that I hope it gives them some help and some closure to their life to realise that they're not going through as bad as things as what I went through and you know to go on the run for all them years it is devastating what about young people watching this who might have gangsteritis? Oh, if they've got gangsteritis, forget about it. So what do you want in life? Do you want the cuffs on or do you want them off? Because once the cuffs are on, you can't get them off. So you choose. I would have a campaign, um, actually, Terry Mugan, cuffs on, cuffs off. 
<laughs> I think that'd be a good campaign in Britain. Definitely. Would you like that? Yeah. I think that I came up with that idea this morning in bed. Mm. Cuffs on or cuffs off. No cuffs on. I always believed in, um, nobody talks about the Ten Commandments. I always believed there's eleventh one. And I always preach it. Would you have any idea what it is? Eleventh Commandment. Anyone got any ideas? Don't get involved in drugs. No. Don't get caught. Don't get caught. The Eleventh Commandment. Don't get caught. So remember, don't get caught. Cuffs on, they're going to stay on. Cuffs off, they're going to stay off. Gang members, you'll be in a cell. You stab someone, you're going to be in a lonely cell for the rest of your life. The outside world forget about you, and then you've got to deal with the government, the British government, that is going to step down, and you don't know what they've got in store for you. So, the easy life... Don't get caught. Get educated. Find a family. Raise well. Go to somebody. Talk to them. Even You could actually even go to a psychologist or someone and tell them your problems unless you've got these problems that you want to kill someone or something like that. Don't do it. For you, for you young children out there today, do not do it, please. And can people watching this reach out to you on social media or anything? Yeah, so, I've got a I've got a beautiful um, Instagram. It's called the Hollywood Butler. It's all black and white. You can go to it. You can send me messages. You can follow me, and just look at some of the life that I've led, and look at the significant photos that there and and the marked underneath. And it's I'm I'm very fortunate. I've had a good life, even though I started bad. Please let us know in the comments what you thought about this epic story. It's something that we've never heard before in our lives, just where Terry's gone from to back forth. It's madness. Huge thank you, Terry, for coming on. You're welcome. Cheers. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Well done. Yeah.